Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and on behalf of the Dean and Chapter, a very warm welcome to this, the first of the St Paul's Forum debates for this season. Those of you who have read your publicity uh, may be aware there's a slight change to the panel arrangement this evening. I'm very sorry to say that John Muddiman is unable to be with us, but Giles Fraser is taking his place on the panel, and I am acting as chair. My name is Andrew Carwood, and I'm the director of music here at St Paul's Cathedral. I also run a group called the Cardinals Music, which has specialised in performance of the music of the 16th and 17th centuries. We're here to reflect on a character about whom we know relatively very little in concrete terms, but who has had an enormous impact on the development of civilization. Whether it's from Augustine and his worries about original sin, through to the medieval author who came up with the clever tag, Nova, Nova, Ave, Fit, Ex, Ava, News, News, Ave, that is the words of the angel Gabriel, has been taken out of Eve, Ava, being Ave backwards. Through to Milton's seductive Eve in Paradise Lost, who first eats the apple, although, interestingly, it's only when Adam eats the apple that Milton feels it necessary to place it at a significant line, number 1,000, in Book 9 of Paradise Lost. Through to Haydn, who took Milton as his inspiration and wrote his setting of the creation, where Eve is reduced to very little else other than a subservient wife. O thou for whom I am, my help, my shield, my all, thy will is law to me. And even perhaps right up into the 20th century, with that remarkable film from the 1950s, All About Eve, where a young woman called Eve proves to be the undermining of an older actress's career and her personal relationships. I'll introduce our distinguished panelists in a moment, but for those of you who've not been to one of our debates before, may I just explain the format? In a moment, I'm going to ask both of our speakers to introduce the subject, after which we'll take questions from the floor. If you have a question, please write it on the back of your leaflet and hold it up in the air and it will be collected. We'll collect questions until about 7.30 and please do try to keep them brief because it helps us um, get in as many questions as possible. We will end promptly at 8 o'clock, but before you leave, do visit the bookstall at the back and please also give generously to the retiring collection for the Bible Society, who do amazing work bringing the Bible to people who have no access to it. And now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our panel. Rosalind Murphy is the incumbent of St. Thomas Church in central Blackpool. Born in Texas, she grew up in Wisconsin in the Midwest, where her father was an ordained Pentecostal minister in the Church of God in Christ. She came to England in 1999 to continue her postgraduate studies, 
and in 2005 finished her PhD in Biblical Studies at the University of Durham, and in the same year was ordained in the Church of England. She also serves on the Archbishop's Council, the governing body for the Church of England, and has lectured at Durham University, was guest speaker at the Lambeth Conference, and was the first woman to speak at the Muhammad Ali Mosque in Cairo in Egypt. Giles Fraser is Canon Chancellor of St Paul's Cathedral, heading up the teaching ministry of the cathedral here. He has a PhD in philosophical theology and has published and lectured widely in philosophy of religion and ethics. He lectures for the army on moral leadership in war at the Defence Academy in Shrivenham, was the founder of the Inclusive Church and is a regular contributor to national newspapers and to Radio 4's Thoughts for the Day. Could I ask you now please to welcome our panel. I apologise ladies and gentlemen, I'm having real trouble with this earpiece that I have. When I was at school, um, my um, unkind nickname from other boys was World Cup Willie. Um, because I have big ears and they thought I looked like the World Cup. And I don't think this thing really hooks very well onto my huge, great big ears. Um, I want to start by um, saying how sorry I am that John Muddyman couldn't be here. Uh, John is a friend of mine and was my tutor in Oxford and is a very considerable uh, biblical scholar. And unfortunately, we received a message from him this morning that he is poorly. So we have this rather ad hoc arrangement that we've put together that I'm going to say a few words to start with. And Andrew has quite kindly decided to sing, maybe, if the things lag. Um, but I apologise for not being John Muddyman. I would, however, like to, um, just for a couple of minutes, say something that I learned from John um, sitting at his feet, one of the great distinguished Oxford scholars of the Bible. John taught me a way of reading the Bible which opened my eyes. He taught me that the two of the great villains of, of biblical scholarship were Rabbi Isaac Kalanomus and Robert Estienne, names I suspect many of you will not have heard of. But in 1440, the rabbi, and in 1551, the Frenchman, added those little numbers that you get in the Bible, the verse numbers. And it's actually news to a lot of people that they weren't there before 1440 in the Hebrew Scriptures and 1551 in the New Testament. That actually those divisions uh, were alien to the original script. Now, the reason I have a thing about those little numbers is that it encourages us, us to see the Bible simply as a series of propositions, chunks, one bit, another bit, and you know the way in which people argue verse so-and-so, chucking a biblical verse at each other, as if the truth always exists at the level of an individual sentence. What John taught me to see is that the truth that the Bible is getting at 
uh, occurs and dawns over a longer narrative. And that actually, if you take those numbers out and try and read things in the flow of scripture, you see and hear a completely different sort of theology. There's a very interesting, um, if I may have a diversion just for a second. I'm slightly obsessed with golf, and I apologize for that. And there is a great little book uh, by John Updike, the, the amazing American author, uh, on, on golf and uh, how he is obsessed with golf. And there's a little bit in there about how to learn to swing a golf club. And I, in my time, have read many very dull books about how to swing a golf club and have stood in the mirror, putting my thumb in the right place and my hand in the right place and lifting my elbow in the right place. Incredibly complicated instructions. And Updike uh, writes a, uh, a short story about how to drink a cup of tea in the style of a golf instruction manual. Pick up the cup at 45 degrees and lift your arm. And, and it goes on for pages and pages on how to drink a cup of tea in the same style. The reason I'm telling you this is that it makes it sound so incredibly complicated. That's the joke that Updike is telling. That the cup of tea lifting, you could almost not follow those minute instructions. And yet there is something, when you do it right, freeing and easy about swinging a golf club. You just do it. And there is a way in which we get cramped and caught by breaking things down into tiny little segments and that actually we should be seeing the bigger picture and what it is all about. And I think that's absolutely true of the Bible. And that's uh, what um, John Muddyman taught me and I'm afraid, um, I'm very sad that he can't be here this evening. So to Eve. Eve, of course, and a lot of this evening, I'm sure, will be about the way in which this story has, over the centuries, come to oppress women, to place women in a particular narrative, to see women as perhaps second-class citizens, derivative humans. The feminist journal is called Spare Rib for a very clear reason. However, the funny thing is that even though Eve has had an extraordinary, uh, huge cultural impact, and upon women in particular, for the biblical authors, for the biblical authors, Eve is not a big deal. There's only actually four references to Eve in the whole of the Bible. Now, you'd think given how significant a character Eve is in our cultural worldview, the idea that Eve is so little mentioned should challenge us. In fact, this text, Genesis 2 and 3, is relatively marginal to many of the writers, especially in the Hebrew scriptures. And though perhaps not to Paul, and it's through Paul, I think, that we read a lot of, of Eve in the way that we do. 
for the uh, writers of the Hebrew scriptures, this is not a big or significant or terribly important text. About the fool, we get that from Paul. Evil, not there. Satan, read it, it's not there. Sex, not there. There's a whole, even death itself. So there's reference to death, but nobody dies. Adam, as in Adam all dies, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But in this particular uh, text, death is alluded to, but not present. All those things that we've come to associate with Eve, sex, death, evil, fall, Satan, you read the text, they're not actually there. Now, I think we come to read it through Paul, perhaps through Augustine and Luther, and that's where we, we set it, we set this text within a bigger narrative. But Paul himself was not concerned with the text per se. Paul was concerned to proclaim the good news. Interestingly, there are two creation stories. This is widely known. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3. And Genesis 1 tells a particular story of the beginning of the world. And then Genesis 2 and 3 tells another alternative creation story about the beginning of the world. But actually, if you read... Where's my Bible? If you read the first one, you'll see that woman is already created in Genesis 1. Just to remind us. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all wild animals, over everything that creeps. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Much more inclusive account, complementary account of of um, the relation, the creation of, of woman, the same as man, the same breath, no difference. But then the second story. There are those who've argued that even in the second story, I'm not sure I buy this, but I put it out there as, as, as a point to contemplate, that even in the, the second creation narrative, where Eve is created out of Adam's rib, Phyllis Tribble, the, the feminist author points out that in the creation narratives the better things come later you build up to them and actually as Eve is created at the end Eve is as it were the pinnacle of creation well there we are I would like to say that there are other ways of reading this text rather than the text about the fall. In fact, there are many texts within the scriptures that you can use as an account of the fall, depending upon your various understandings of redemption. You could, for instance, understand the enslavement of the people of Israel 
under the Egyptians as the fall, for a great many of accounts of redemption, of salvation in the Hebrew scriptures themselves are about the people of Israel being the subject of salvation. The people are set free. The people find a new land, a promised land. And that is a form of redemption for them, one that Jesus refers to quite a lot. The redemption narratives within the scriptures are many and various. This text, I think, and I've come to read it, as not so much through the way Paul and Augustine and Luther bend us to, towards it, but I saw it, see it more in terms of the wisdom tradition in the Hebrew scriptures. A little bit later in Genesis, there is the story of the Tower of Babel, when human beings overstep their limit, overstep their boundaries, try to become like God. That's in Genesis 2. And in becoming like God, in the hubris of becoming like God, they fall. They do not know their appointed boundaries. One of the great things in wisdom literature, in the book of Job, classically in the book of Job, it is, there is much about the world that we do not understand. And that actually it can sometimes be about human arrogance, where we overreach our limits and reach almost for power, for a power that is not ours to have. It's not, it's not a counsel of ignorance being good. It's a counsel of trust that on some fundamental level, human beings have to trust in God, in that in which they cannot fully understand. I think within the context of that literature, that set of stories, if you return back to the second chapter, third chapter of Genesis, you see this as human beings being encouraged to overstep their limits to eat of the tree of the knowledge. That it's about power. And that God is saying, there is a sense in which there is much we cannot understand as human beings. You cannot understand. Like the Tower of Babel, do not overreach. Trust in God at the heart of all things. Now, in setting the story of Eve in a more of a wisdom context than in Paul's context, uh, I may be at odds with other people. But it seems to me that this text has been widely misused and widely misunderstood and often to the detriment of women historically throughout the world. I'd like us to think hard and continue to think hard about how we treat texts like these and how we import into them often our own assumptions about what they say when perhaps they say no such thing.
Good evening. I'm really pleased to be with you uh, here tonight and to be on the panel with Giles. We've met about 30 minutes ago and it's wonderful. Tonight what I'd like to do is trace the trajectory of the Genesis story specifically about Eve and how it has been interpreted and mistranslated uh, throughout uh, its inception. So I'll talk a little bit about rabbinical literature. I'll talk a little bit about the early church fathers, some of the mystic writers. Uh, all the way through to Apostle Paul, and a little bit about the Church of England and the House of Bishops. And Giles was absolutely correct. There are four texts that mention Eve specifically by name in the Bible. Genesis 3.20, Genesis 4.1, Second Corinthians 11.3, and First Timothy 2.12. And I talk very fast because you may have noticed I'm an American, so I'll try to slow it down just a little bit. Eve, the first woman, wife, and mother, is rarely discussed or spoken of in positive matriarchal terms in biblical exegesis. While credible scientific evidence has confirmed her existence through the discovery of mitochondrial DNA, descriptions of our universal mother yet include widespread use of terms such as temptress, adulteress, victim, and these terms are either stated or inferred in the writings. So sometimes quite explicit, other times silent and undertone. This means that the scientific community gives greater significance to the mother of all living than the religious communities that publish her narrative. And while biblical scholars would agree that the negative descriptions of Eve as temptress or adulteress or victim or a harlot are not literally present in the text, they suggest that the condensed narrative lends itself to widespread speculation. And so it gives them the privilege to be able to usurp her story and change it to suit their own needs. So it has spawned imaginative commentary located throughout Jewish literature, be it rabbinical traditions or apocryphal writings, as well as Christian biblical interpretation. For instance, the central scene of the narrative takes place in Genesis 3.6, which reads, Then the woman saw that the tree was good to eat, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes. And the tree was desirable to give one insight. So she took some of its fruit, ate it, and also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. The key elements in the portion of this account isolate the fact that it is the woman who saw the tree, took the fruit, ate it, and gave it to the man. So Eve is the principal character in this brief description of what transpires. In a relatively modern exposition provided by J.T. Walsh, and he's a biblical commentator writing, I think as recently as 1998, so not too far away, he concludes that man listens to his wife instead of God, and yet we never hear Eve speak to Adam in the story of the fall. Rather, Eve gives to Adam, and Adam takes and eats. Unfortunately, his comments echo what those have been provided in the early writings of the church and even later biblical commentators. For instance, if we go further back to the late 19th century, the German scholar Gerhard von Rod interprets Eve's actions in verse 6 in light of human sinfulness that's later described in 1 John 2.16. So I'm going to be referring to those verses that Giles wants you to forget about. He opens his description of Eve with the quote, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And then he concludes his characterization of her by stating, the one who has been led astray now becomes a temptress. This description of Eve as a temptress is pervasive amongst the writings of early church fathers. Gregory of Nyssa, writing as early as 370 AD, asserts that Eve beguiled her husband using her pleasures. However, negative descriptions of Eve as temptress and co-conspirator with Satan in the downfall of humanity are not confined to male theologians and commentators. Mother Heloise, in the 12th century, a scholar and abbess, is quoted in one of her letters to Peter Abelard as repenting of having been born of a woman, acknowledging her belief that it was the first woman in the beginning who lured humanity from paradise. Now, there may even be some women here today who feel comfortable with this analysis. But in fact, many of the dress codes and contemporary Pentecostalism and conservative evangelism, particularly in churches in America, stress modest dress amongst women as a prescriptive to prevent the temptation of their male counterparts. 
Unfortunately, the description of Eve as a proverbial temptress continues throughout the medieval period. Bonaventure, the Italian mystic and theologian, goes so far as to describe Eve as a woman who exercised wicked persuasion that led to the corruption of her husband, Adam. Likewise, John Chrysostom uses his exposition of Genesis to rationalize why women should be excluded from teaching others Holy Scripture. He writes, the woman taught the man once and ruined all of humanity. Of course, his comments resonate with the text found in 1 Timothy 2 and 12. There, it says, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness and modesty. Well, I'm married, I've got two children, so I think I've been saved. <laughs> Today, this text, along with the tradition of the early church to which John Chrysanthemum is writing, is used by those opposed to female leadership, particularly ordination. However, we know that this text is inconsistent with the practice of the early church, as there are certainly instances in the New Testament where women are leading and teaching others, both male and female. The key to the first Timothy text, as in most instances with Bible reading, rests with the translation, particularly the verb that is being used in verse 12. And I won't get into a lot of the Greek for you, but here the tense for the verb is in present active indicative case, which means that it should be considered as continuously active. So a more precise translation would be something along the lines of, I'm not presently or I'm not currently permitting women to teach. Needless to say, the consequences of Eve's actions have become somewhat distorted here in 1 Timothy. In this instance, Eve's character as a woman has been deceived, is projected onto all women in order to limit female leadership and potentially stifle their teaching gifts. The unspoken nuance of the text is that since Adam was not deceived, he was skillfully persuaded to sin by his wife. Consequently, Eve also represents all women and their potential to lure men into sin. And yet, the text simply says, she also gave it to her husband and he ate. So we must ask, if Eve's act of giving to Adam is equivalent in biblical interpretation to tempting or luring or enticing someone into sin, cannot the same logic be applied in our interpretation of God bringing Eve to Adam and placing both in the garden with the tree in its midst?
for to give, as Eve did to Adam, is by definition a gratuitous act of transfer. The recipient has the option to take possession of what is being offered or handed over to them by the other person, or they can reject it. Alternatively, to bring as God brought Eve to Adam carries within its definition the act of causation. In this instance, the person or entity that is God conveys something or someone onto another being, either by carrying or leading. And so the causation there suggests some form of inducement or expectation may be present, despite any potential reluctance which may have been expressed by the person being brought to the recipient or the beneficiary's desire to receive what is being given to them. Consequently, the verb here used and translated to bring offers a more comparable interpretation to the meaning of tempt and entice more so than the verb to give. Early rabbinical scholars must have understood this because in their analysis of Eve's narrative, Many of their writings not, do not describe her as a temptress who led Adam into sin, but as one who is somehow aligned with Satan. For instance, in the Jewish Midrash, Eve is identified as being created together with Satan. In addition, Jewish legends take on a more sexual connotation. For instance, both the Genesis rabbi and the Sohar retain a legend whereby the serpent is induced to leave Eve into sin by a desire to possess her. And so the serpent casts into Eve the taint of lust. Eve proves unable to resist this lustful desire because as the Jewish commentary maintains, and I guess everybody knows this, women are more easily moved than men and are therefore more prone to being beguiled. The Genesis rabbi goes on to explain that this lustful seduction was possible because at the time, Satan had the shape of a man. And then Rabbi Eliezer further expands this thesis. While this writing relies on much earlier Palestinian traditions, Christian writers such as Paul reveal the influence of these texts as well. In this particular literature, the author argues that Adam only fathered Seth. Prior to Seth, Eve became pregnant with Cain after the evil angel Samael seduced her. The writing goes on to clarify that during this deception, the angel came to Eve riding on the serpent. So unwittingly, Eve, the consummate victim and now adulteress, only recognizes that she has been duped after giving birth to Cain. The writing states that Cain's likeness was not of the earthly beings, but of the heavenly beings. And so Eve then prophesied and said, I have gotten a man with the Lord. This interpretation of Genesis 4.1 finds further support in the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan. 
Old Testament scholars suggest that these Jewish writings strive to justify Eve's comments, which were being perceived as being problematic. And Haggadic literature actually represents scholarly efforts to deflect any type of speculation that Eve had an affair with God. So it appears that Jewish scholars believed it's far better for the mother of all living to bear the title of adulteress or to be perceived as a harlot rather than to depict the influence of Greco-Roman or Near Eastern mythology surrounding fertility cults in their writings. For in many of these traditions, women often produced offspring conceived through sexual relations with pagan gods, except they were revered and worshiped. What appears most alarming is that in these Jewish texts, they ignore the biblical text altogether, identifying that it is Eve's sexual relationship with Adam, her husband, and her obedient response to God's edict to be fruitful and multiply that actually produced their son Cain. Genesis 4.1 states, now the, men, the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. As we have seen, many of these Jewish traditions that depict Eve as an adulteress are reminiscent of early Christian interpretive texts that diminish the reputation of Mary Magdalene by identifying her as a prostitute at the expense of promoting Jesus' male apostles. In this instance, the denigration of the universal mother of all humanity makes a powerful statement about her male offspring, primarily that her disgrace becomes a price of male dominance. As previously stated, many of these Jewish legends and rabbinical writings would have undoubtedly been familiar to scholars such as Paul. He uses Eve's persona of beguiled victim to illustrate how Christians can be lured away from their devotion to Christ. Here the idea is that just as an alien power such as Satan worked effectively to impact and destroy Eve's relationship with God and her husband Adam, likewise the same power will have a corrupting influence on the Corinthians. Paul predicts that like Eve, the Corinthians will be lured away from their right relationship with Jesus Christ and faithful adherence to Paul's message. In his commentary on 2 Corinthians, Ralph Martin argues, the Corinthian church slides away from Paul's message is being traced to a malign influence. Using the story of Genesis 3 where human innocence is lost, man's first disobedience is turned and abetted by Eve's deception and they're succumbing to Satan's advances. Here, Paul is definitely drawing on extra canonical sources. Martin further contends that the Second Corinthians text suggests Paul's acquaintance with Jewish literature or a scripturally based story that reiterates the legend of the snake which seduced Eve in the garden. 
However, I believe it's also plausible that Paul is drawing from Eve's own comments in Genesis 3. Here, Eve talks with God, and she replies to him when he asks her, what have you done? And she says, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. In either scenario, Eve is portrayed as a victim of her own naivete or that of a licentious editorials. And I think it's important to point out here that Eve answered truthfully. Adam, on the other hand, he kind of put the blame out there on her. But she honestly says, I was duped. I didn't know what I was doing. These of Eve's character as a temptress, adulteress, and victim have a trajectory with far-reaching implications, stemming from the biblical account of original sin in Genesis 3 to the rabbinical literature and Jewish traditions that introduce sexual overtones to her actions in the first century Pauline letters and pastoral epistles epistles that victimize her and limit the gifts of Christian women to the later writings of the early church fathers that relegate Eve to the role of temptress over her own husband. These accounts beg the question of contemporary scholarship. Can Eve ever be redeemed? And with her, all women. In their report on the women bishops in the Church of England, the working party of the Church of England's House of Bishops concluded that in Genesis 3, female subordination and the ensuing conflict with her male counterpart appears to be a consequence of sexual polarization and disobedience. In other words, female support subordination is a result of sin and it stands in direct conflict with God's model society created in Genesis 1 and 2. The first two chapters of the Genesis account place male and female beings in complementary roles that are more accurately reflective of God's intent as it supplies scriptural evidence of divine approval. This is where God says, it is good. What I've created is perfect. It's only after the fall, in chapter 3, that we see this change in the relationship. And Giles has already pointed this out. Further evidence to support this is in Deuteronomy 29. Here, females are clearly identified as full members of God's covenant community, although they are situated in a lower order to their male counterparts, be they fathers or husbands, brothers, or even their sons. Yet other evidence in the Old Testament writings visibly reveal that women were not barred from senior leadership positions in Jewish society. Women such as Miriam and Deborah and Huldah and even Esther all entered the biblical scene as national leaders in their own right. Today, many New Testament scholars argue that Jesus radically challenged the social norms of first century Jewish culture particularly as it pertained to women. They contend that within the redemptive work of Christ, the subjugation of women was removed, and the original created order that God intended was restored.
in Reuben Kimmelmill's research entitled The Seduction of Eve and the Exegetical Politics of Gender. The author supports this theory, suggesting that male dominance is dependent upon female subservience. He argues that male and female together comprise the primordial human created by God and that there is no evidence of any hierarchical command or compliance structure prior to the fall. He persuasively contends that subservience in the Genesis account, be it the snake to the humans, the female to the male, or the male to the land that he must till, is presented within the context of punishment for sin. Consequently, mutuality replaces subservience through the restoration of God's creation to its original pristine glory. Paul's writing in Romans 5.23 affirms this salvific ecclesiology. It reads, Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, which is effective through faith. Consequently, it is our faith in the redeeming work of Christ that restores us to God's pristine glory. It is also our faith, or lack thereof, that determines whether we will continue to perceive others, or maybe even ourselves, as subservient members within the body of Christ. Thank you to Rosalind and Giles for those presentations and for those stimulating thoughts. I'm going to take the chair's privilege and ask a question of my own, first of all, if I may. We have some coming in from the floor, um, and they're appearing on the screen in front of me, so do, do keep them coming. Uh, we've touched a little bit on uh, Mary Magdalene, we mentioned, and some of the great characters of the Old Testament as well, and we've also got the New Testament deacons, Phoebe and Chloe, it seems to me that we, as a, as, a, as a Western church, have been much more focused on the vilification of women rather than the promoting of women. And I'd like to start off by asking, are men afraid of women and why? I've always wanted to silence a panel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just these questions are... are are certainly out there. I mean, so many men are afraid of women. Um, so many men are afraid of the power that women have over them. Um, so many um, men are also keen to insist upon their own power and authority and have um, shaped a society that enables them to do that over the centuries. And the way in which religion itself and the sorts of stories we've been looking at have been um, crowbarred into 
supporting a sort of patriarchal society um, underpinned by a, a, a fear of women often from men is something that takes such a vast amount of biblical, psychological unscrambling. Mm. Um, I mean, that's part of why that question would silence anybody. Because, you know, the history, the psychology, uh, the theology, you know, almost every sphere of, of human cultural life gets sucked into those sorts of questions. And they are ones that, um, I think, in the 20th century, we have begun to try and unscramble. But I think there's actually a huge amount more unscrambling that needs to happen in a whole load of areas, including, including theology. I would say I'm not as sure if it's being afraid of women as much as it is being afraid of the loss of power. Yeah. Because it really is about a power struggle. And I've always been a firm believer if the only way that you can move forward is on the backs of someone else, then somehow what you acquire is, is, is not worth it because you've had to destroy someone else in the process of getting it. And I think that's part of what Jesus came to teach us is it's, it's quite clear that he was able to liberate Israel, to rid it of its Roman captivity and to set it free and to raise the people up. But instead he chose to take a more humbler, more salvific course because there would have required destruction of others. And I think that's, that's the message that even as women, as we do come forward, we have to remind our brothers, listen, I'm not trying to, to take your power. I really want to come forward on what it is that I have to offer. And I believe if we work closely together, we'll be able to complement each other. Thank you. The Freudian, the Freudian analysis in all this is, is that it's a fear of loss of potency, isn't it? That it's huh? a fear of loss of power. And that, and that the Freudian uh, yes. um, understanding of, of that relationship is, is something to do with fear that one's power, one's potency is going to be taken away in some way. Or the other side of it, if we go back and look at fertility cults, there was actually the aspect of women needing to take on that seminal influence in order to rise up and be powerful. So there's a little bit of both working in that, I think, that there's the loss of the power or the fear of it, but also, as you said, this, I think there's this sexual thing going uh, on as well, too. Dare I say that in the cathedral? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you've mentioned that, actually. I suspect quite a lot of our questions this evening will be to do with um, the relationship of men and women. I'm going to move to the first one from the floor now. Uh, which says, is Eve a scapegoat for men not being able or willing to control their libidos? I don't know which direction to look in first. Giles, do you want to speak first? Well, I mean, it grows out of what we've been talking about before. The whole idea of, um, I'm, not sure, I, I'm not sure it's just about the control of libidos. I think, it's, I think libido is part of it, but I think it's broader than that. I think as Rosalind's right, it's something about power, which is not just about libidos. But, um, you know, 
it seems to be absolutely clear that um, women have been scapegoats in culture for um, for centuries, and um, that's something to do with. I mean, those who are scapegoated are generally speaking those. No, not generally speaking. Overwhelmingly, um, those who don't have power, and so it's those people who don't have power. Uh, that can be scapegoated by members of other members of the community. So a lot of this is um, a lot of this is is actually about it is about pretty big dynamics of of power. Yes, women are, uh, and and I mean it's very very subtle. I mean, and sometimes it's really hard to know whether it's going on or not. Was Amanda Knox in uh, in the trial in Italy that's been going on? Um, was she being scapegoated um, by the media? Um, well, in one sense, you might want to say she was. Um, now she's, you know, she's been found innocent. And all of that um, language that was used about her, the sort of sexualized language about her, her as temptress, foxy, noxy, or whatever, so she was called her, and that, on one, on one hand, worked to put her in a place and also she was locked up, she was imprisoned, and, and there was a scapegoating going on there. Now, I, I, mean, I don't know the rights and wrongs of it, but the way the media worked um, towards her seemed very much that it, it linked the scapegoating and, and the sex were somehow linked in some really disturbing cocktail. Is this something to do with our preoccupation, not, not being able to discuss sex openly, do you think? Do you think we have to hide it away? Um, I think we're, we're better at discussing sex. I mean, I think, we're, I think perhaps we discuss sex too much these days. Um, I think it, we, we reversed from what the Victorians did. I think the Victorians kept sex under wraps and talked about death a lot. And I think we now talk about z uh, sex too much and keep death under wraps. And, and um, I, <laughs> I think perhaps we talk about it too much. Yeah, I think historically, and uh, going back to the question about male libido, uh, historically, Women have always uh, been the ones where their reputation has been denigrated. I mean, we all know the story of if a, if a man goes out and has several girlfriends, you know, he's a hunk, you know. If a woman goes out and has several boyfriends, well, you know, she... I, I, I'm trying to think of the word that you use over here. Tart. Uh, yeah, well, well, I was going to say something more like trollop or, yeah. you know. But, yeah. but, and so that's, that's part of the culture that we come up in. And we know that historically, whenever one nation is being conquered by another, and we see this happening with the wars and, and the fighting that's taking place in the Sudan and other places of Africa, what do you do? You go in, you rape the women. It's again a sign of power and dominance and being in control. And unfortunately, women traditionally fall victim to it. And, and, and I liked what you were saying earlier about uh, men being able to be more confident in themselves where they actually uh, aren't afraid of women and feel that part of their role in protecting her if she needs to be protected. 
hmm, uh, is, 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 is about accepting all of the gifts that she brings, whether that be confidence or expertise in a particular area that a man doesn't have, you know, and just accepting her fully and, and not feeling that there has to somehow be this denigration of her. And I think that's what we see in Eve, the sexual exploitation of her and her reputation totally denigrated. It wasn't enough for her to acknowledge, yeah, I did it. You know, I ate the fruit. Uh, she had to be thoroughly and totally stomped upon and just obliterated and her reputation along with it so that women could not possibly rise above that. Is, is part of the issue, do you think, in relation to that, that if one accepts Genesis as being fairly literal, that, that a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing who created a certain situation couldn't create someone who would get something wrong like that. Yes. Don't eat this. She goes, well, she first eats it, Adam eats it second. Mm -hmm. Is that, do you think that's part of the reason I, for the vilification? I, I think what we're looking at, you no, know, specifically in this instance, is I think the early Jewish scholars really had difficulty with the fact that she makes this comment about uh, having given birth to a man by God because at the time divinity comes out of the ability to recreate. God has created this man and woman and now so has Eve. Can I just respond to the question about reading, <laughs> re reading it literally? Um, because um, you know, culture wars, particularly in the US, often um, focus on the idea that you are obliged to read this Genesis account literally. But if you read it literally, you're not actually taking it seriously. Because there are two accounts. There are two accounts. Woman is created twice. If you're reading it literally, created there in the first story, God created them, and then created there again in the second story. Now, you can, if you like, go through the most ridiculous intellectual gymnastics to try and make these things go together. But actually, if you take it literally, you won't be really letting the Bible speak to you. Because this is working on a completely different level than literalism allows. These are two different accounts of the creation. And they are not um, ones that ought to be read in the way that fundamentalists read them. They, they, were, never read, they were never intended like that. They weren't used like that by Jewish, Jewish uh, theologians or many of the theologians until perhaps the 20th century. I think the other thing, too, is in, in, in all fairness, because I, I, I can't get around the aspect of the woman having a conversation with a serpent. And most women today, if they walked into their house and there was a snake standing up in the kitchen, even a slug, you know, a really big one. <laughs> 
you're not going to have a conversation. You're looking for the salt no. or the slug repellent or, you know. So, so I, there's some aspects of the Bible that I, I think, in, in all fairness, we can't take literally. And so we have to begin to understand what is the story and what is it saying? You know, is the serpent really Eve's conscience or the concept of the idea, hmm, I wonder what would happen if we ate this fruit because we've been told this was going to happen. Or why have we been told not to eat this fruit? And so this conversation may be taking place internally with Eve or possibly with her and Adam. I think you're absolutely right. I don't think it's just women who would run a mile if a snake turned up in the kitchen as well. <laughs> Interestingly, John Milton had to go through exactly this process in Paradise yes. Lost about how could a snake speak to Eve, and he rather cleverly came up with this idea that, the, the, first of all, the snake was upright. He didn't slither on the ground. He walked upright. And he put his tongue out and used it like a tuning fork, and it resonated to different pitches, and this is how he formed the words. Running so in the different direction. Quite a lot. I'm going to move to another question now from the floor, um, which says, God curses Eve with childbearing and subjection to her husband. What does this mean for women and for men? Um, I'm, I'm happy to say something about childbearing. Perhaps if... Um, I, I'm, I'm very struck by the way in which... Um, uh, I mean, this is... An aside to this, but very struck by the way in which children um, in in the um, in the Bible are a political thing, and I got this very clearly a number of years ago when um, I went to visit Gaza and was so struck by the fact that um, many of these um, people who were living in pretty awful and poor conditions had eight. 10 kids. And I remember asking a family in Karnunis in the southern part of Gaza Strip, in, rather impertinently, why do you have so many children? And they said, Yasser Arafat has told us that we win through the Palestinian womb. And that's to say that demographics this family was telling me, demographics are what are going to beat the Israelis. That's what they were telling me. Now, it's quite a shocking thing to say, but I thought about it more, and I thought it's very interesting. With vulnerable communities, communities that feel they're going to be overpowered, childbearing becomes something absolutely politically crucial. Essential. And I think in the, I think in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, um, one of the ways of understanding why there is, in certain um, passages, a hostility to um, gay people, uh, to eunuchs, to women who are barren, all those sorts of things that return again and again are to do with the centrality of children. Abraham saying, I will give you children like stars and numerous and what's really interesting is that that changes about the, about the book of Isaiah. Isaiah says, actually, you lot have got to grow up. It's not about this. It's about your loyalty to God. And there's an extraordinary passage where in, in Isaiah, I think it's 30, 40-something, um, where 
um, this is discussed specifically to do with eunuchs as it happens. Um, eunuchs are not allowed to go into God's house in Deuteronomy and, and uh, in Isaiah. Isaiah says, no, anybody who does the will of my father, uh, that person is welcome in my house. It's about loyalty to God. And there's this really interesting transition from an obsession with a vulnerable community with childbearing to, and, and how that scapegoats particular character, uh, people to this understanding of, 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 of loyalty to God as the basis for um, uh, acceptability. I'd just like to say, first of all, with the question, it's really not childbirth that is the curse. It's the pain of childbirth that's the curse. And as a mother, I cannot imagine uh, the birth of my children being a curse. They are a privilege. And I believe that any woman who hasn't been able to have a child and so desires to have one would not see it um, as a curse. So I just need to say that and get that out of the way. I think the aspect of pain with childbirth is a way of explaining the pain. Sometimes scripture is quite practical. And if you want to explain why is it painful for a woman to have a child, that's certainly one of the ways to explain it, is to say, well, this happened, and so this is part of your punishment. Regarding the subservience to men, uh, thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank God for his blood and his redemptive power that says you are created new. And, and I hold on to that. Uh, is, are there times when we are subservient to others? I think there are always times that we are subservient to others. As a priest, I am constantly reminded of my subservience to others. <laughs> but I, I, so, yes, there is a curse there. But the question is, isn't there also redemption? And the answer to that is yes, there is. Rosalind, I'm going to stay with you. Um, so I've received a question here which relates specifically to something we're talking about. It says, after Rosalind's description of the vilification of women, why would any self-respecting woman want to be part of this faith? What does it have to offer? Wow. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a part of this faith because I don't think I could be the person who I am without some understanding of a God who has created me with a specific purpose in life. And whatever that purpose is, I want to be able to fulfill it and to achieve it. I think that several religions have uh, problems with women. So it's not just the Christian faith. 
we could talk about Judaism, we could talk about Islam, we could talk about even some of the Hindi religions that deal with the caste system. And so it's not just about religion or faith, it's about really being who you're created to be. And I personally, I'm a fighter. <laughs> And, and I don't think you can be, and, and, and I'm going to say this, and, and I hope it's all right. I don't think you can be a, a black woman today uh, and, and a biblical scholar and a priest and all that goes into that without having a faith to back you up. Some, some place and somewhere deep inside of you that you can go and be able to find restoration and strength and zeal to keep going. And so that's why uh, my faith is so important to me because it helps me live out this person that I'm called to be, because it's not just a priest. I'm also a woman, I'm also a wife, I'm also a mother and a sister and, uh, and an aunt and, and a scholar and everything else that goes along with it. And with all of that mixed in there together, I need something inside that I can always go back to that keeps me centered, and that's my faith. I feel I want to react quite strongly to this question. Perhaps, perhaps I shouldn't, but uh, why would any self-respecting woman want to be a part of this faith? And I want to react quite strongly to it because um, I can't think of any tradition, any history, any group of people, the English, the Americans, yeah. that don't have blood on their hands in one way or the other. And I think that what's going on here is a, uh, an honest engagement with the complexity of the tradition and the way in which that tradition has been used. And I think the only way you can avoid being a part of any organization or group of people that has that is to live on a desert island. And I think the great thing about, I mean, funnily enough, one of the things I most value about the, the bloodiness and the difficulty of my own Christian tradition, which uh, I'm very well aware of, is that it gives me a self-critical vigilance about who I am. And that actually, if you want to live in a sort of pristine moral world where nothing you touch has ever been touched by something that's difficult or horrible or complicated or has, has dealt death as well as life, then actually you're not engaging with the horrors of the world. I don't think that place exists, Giles. It doesn't so exist. It, it just doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And, 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 and I think too, I, re I remember reading something by um, uh, Archbishop Sintamu where he was referring to rugby and, and sort of getting into the scrub, you know, that if you want, if you don't like what you see, 
You know, it's like this rugby match. Get in there, you know, get dirty, get bloody, roll your sleeves up, be a part of winning the game and making the transition and making things change. You can't do it looking on the outside and just pointing fingers and saying, Oh, I don't like that, or what about that over there? You've got to get in and be a part of it to make sure that change comes about. And, and, and I like what you said too earlier about uh, the engagement. If, if you don't have women like me who get in there into the scrub again and, and, and get engaged with what's happening in the church, it will never mature, it will never grow into the head, which is Jesus Christ. And you have to remember the church is on a journey. She's still quite young. She's on a journey. I'm going to move now to some uh, questions about the, 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 the Genesis story and its place in the Bible. I'm looking at one at the bottom here. It says, who put this story in the Bible and why? Well, the who put it in the Bible, I don't think we know. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. I mean, um, it, we, we don't have a name for this person, and it probably wasn't one person, it's lots of people. Um, and why? Well, I think one of, the, one of the questions I always want to ask of, um, of a biblical narrative is how it expands my imagination and that it sets me in a broader context. And I think the thing about the Genesis story, the early parts of Genesis, is that Genesis invites me to understand my life in the broadest possible context, particularly the first chapter of Genesis. Um, so it's not just about me and my particular troubles of the day and um, the fact that I've got to get the kids to school in the morning and the fact that my bank account looks rubbish and so forth, that actually there is a sort of ambition that we're called to, which is to understand ourselves in this huge context that we call God. And here in, in the um, early part of Genesis is one of the classic statements of setting our life in the broadest possible context. So, I don't know who wrote it. I think it probably wasn't person. It was, it was a lot. Why was it there? It's there because it speaks of that truth. I think the truth which, which uh, my faith is about, which is understanding oneself from the perspective of eternity. That sounds good to me. It, um, I, I think the story probably began as an oral tradition and was retold and assimilated probably over a couple of thousand years. And then after it was written down, was edited and, and rewritten and for about another three or four hundred years before it actually came into being as what we know as the story of Genesis. But I think more than that, it begins with an understanding or an attempt to understand that there is a being, there is a God that saw chaos and out of chaos wanted to bring order. And 
our lives, even today, at times can be chaotic. And we are learning to know this God who brings order in the midst of, of chaos. And so it's, it's about helping us understand who we are. It's part of that theological understanding of, of faith seeking to know, faith seeking understanding, and in the process of it, sort of understanding who we are, that there was this, this all supreme being that said, you know, I want to do something special. And here we are. Well, just picking up on that, and um, with the next question, um, we asked for short questions, and here is a wonderfully short question. Why did God create sin? Any good Christian knows God didn't create sin. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to go first, Rosalind? It's like a crack on while you're laughing. <laughs> um, God gave us the choice to love him or not. And... Um, uh, sin is that place where you are without God, and it's not a it's not a thing that God created. God gave us choice, and choice is what makes the world real. Real. Um, what would be the point of creating, as it were, a toy world where there is no choice? Uh, without choice, there is no real love, and with no r real love, the world is. Nothing like as rich. Sin is, um, sin is that state in which one is not with God. And that is a choice we can make. But it's not something God creates. I don't think I could have answered it any better than that. I do think sin is the absence of God. And God has given us free will. And we use that free will either to have intimate relationship with him, where we seek to know him as we are known by him, or we go our own way. And, and that's a part of the real world. We make choices every day. It's part of that free will. You do something or you don't. And he is giving us that opportunity to either come to know him and be with him or to go our own way. And, and I, he doesn't create sin. I think sin is of our own making. It's when we decide, I'm fine, just the way I am. Thank you. I don't need that. And, and we have to remember, too, we do that sometimes in our relationships with one another. The world, in a time when we are so small, you know, uniquely connected by cyberspace and everything else, we are also becoming more polarized, where we're losing contact with our neighbor and the person who's right next to us, whether they live next door to us, or they sit on the bus next to us, or they're on the train next to us. How many of us travel on the train and rarely speak to someone sitting in the same car with us? Well, that's because we're English. Oh, is that what that <laughs> <Yeah>. is? <laughs> See, that's what I'm getting wrong. I 
talk to everyone. You know? Yeah, that's because you're American. This isn't a God thing. <laughs> See, I thought that was sounding really good. This is polarization. No, but but we are becoming so we, we pull back and, and we're distrusting and, and all of that. And and I think that's part of sin. I think this next one might have to be the last question before I ask our speakers to do their, their final comments. You might take issue with, um, with the phrasing of this question as well. It says, if, if it was all resolved or redeemed, what would it look like? Enigmatic one for you to finish on. Well, it, so this is what does heaven look like, which is which... Um, and um, it is certainly the case that the way in which most uh, Christian writers have described heaven, uh, it's not the sort of place that would keep my attention for very long. <laughs> and um, <laughs> It does seem a lot like church going on and on forever. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is fine for some people. Sorry, Bishop Michael. <laughs> um, uh, so I think we don't know. I think that's. I think our imaginations are not um, are not uh, godly enough to imagine what that would look like, and we are schooled in that. Um, I think that's part of the the job of the church to imagine better what it would be. But I think all resolved and all redeemed. What would perfect love between human beings and God actually look like? Um, we see it very briefly. I was just going to say, watch this space. Um, cause, because we don't have any idea. It's incomprehensible, just as God is incomprehensible beyond our wildest dreams or imaginations. Perfect peace, but also perfect love, uh, harmonious relationship, accepting and being accepted. I mean, we have all sorts of terms that we could use to possibly describe it that would probably not even come that close to what it's going to be like. But I can just say, watch the space. Thank you. Well, I'm going to ask our speakers for a, a final brief last thought now to, to bring the evening to a close. Giles, would you like to go first? Um, yes, I, I think I want to... My takeaway from this is something about how uh, being a part of the Christian tradition is a moral and intellectual struggle. Um, sometimes a struggle with our past, sometimes a struggle with ourselves, to try and pick up those bits in the Bible that speak of what it is to love each other, to understand what that might mean today, and to struggle for that with the historical and cultural baggage that we have. And, and I think the way in which the Christian tradition has been used to denigrate women um, is something that is extremely topical within the Church of England. And I'm going to say something political now. I personally believe very strongly in women bishops and that that is something that will come. And I think those sorts of struggles are, for me, part of what it is to overcome the 
historic um, sexism of interpretations of scripture. I'd like to go back to my original question about can Eve ever be redeemed and all women with her? Um, because for me, the whole process of, of faith is about redemption. Us being able to leave behind what Ever we were and become something new and incredibly wonderful and I'm not sure that we allow that to happen in the church it would be lovely if we did and so that's why we're called I think to engage with her and to remind her of her mission and that is the people of the redeemed. And, and that's what we are. And instead of spending so much time, I guess, I don't want to say arguing, but rigorously debating <laughs> whether or not uh, women should be priests or women should be bishops, we should be rigorously exposing the love and generosity of God to those who don't know him. And so, yes, I, I support women bishops, obviously, uh, but I also want to say that for, for those who aren't there yet, part of the grace of God is allowing people to come at their own speed we grow and mature at different levels. And it's the theological engagement, it's the biblical and intellectual challenge that we bring all of that together. And we learn to appreciate one another where they are, and we still go forward together. Thank you very much for those generous and positive discussions. Uh, I just need to remind you, ladies and gentlemen, now that there is a retiring collection where you have an opportunity of giving some money to the work of the Bible Society. Also, I should just mention, excuse me, that uh, on Sunday at 6 p.m. there is a meditative service here under the dome, um, part of this series of forum events for October, which has music as well as um, speech. And uh, next Tuesday, same time, same place, you can return here for a debate about Moses. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your contributions, which are really very much valued. And can I ask you once again to put your hands together for our two speakers? And could I also ask you, uh, I, uh, I asked Andrew Carwood if he'd chair this debate at four o'clock this afternoon. Um, he had nothing else better to do with his evening. And I thank him a great deal for being here and, and standing in and for making all this happen. <laughs>